Welcome to Beyond the Seminar. I'm Randy Carney, an assistant professor at UC Davis Biomedical Engineering Department, and each week I sit down and have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting our department seminar series. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sherry Shepard, a professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford University. Her lab researches fracture mechanics, but also examines how people become engineers with a huge career focus on teaching undergraduate and graduate students how to do just that. Here we go. first question is, how did you get into teaching engineers? So um, I, I was not born thinking that. In fact, up through high school, um, I kept saying there were two things that I would never do. I would never be a teacher and I would never be an engineer. <laughs> um, and that and was look at you now. related to um, a mother who taught uh, fifth grade um, for 30 plus years. And so I really saw how dedicated she was, but you know, it was her life um, teaching. And then my dad was an engineer. And um, wow. while I ad admired how he thought, you know, I didn't want to be my dad. Um, and I was very involved in music up through high school. Um, I was a violinist and a pianist and um, really was thinking about music conservatories as my next step after, um, after high school. And in fact, we visited a number and I was thinking Oberlin would be a great place to, to study music. And in high school, I also had a dozen of my own violin students. So I was teaching and I found it incredibly frustrating um, <laughs> that, you know, for me, there was a passion about creating music and, and the discipline to practice and get better at it. And, and you know, it was a big part of my high school um, uh, experience. And students were, you know, a fifth grader or a fourth grader was taking violin because mom or dad or someone wanted them to play it. And one week uh, a student came and that week she was worse than the week before. <laughs> and I actually told her that and she cried. Oh, no. And so um, I was starting to recognize, too, that while I was passionate about music, I probably wasn't going to make it as the next Yasha Heifetz. Um, and I because of my mother, I also saw what it was like to teach music in an elementary school. And so, and, and I'm embarrassed to say this now, but, but somehow the idea of being an elementary music school teacher was like, oh, I don't want to do that. That would be a terrible existence. Um, and so the, a couple of other things were happening. I was also on the debate team in high school and really like art. I mm -hmm. like and liked arguing. <laughs> and at the time there was a TV series on called LA Law and there were really some kick butt women prosecutors, you know, in their little suits with their little pumps. And so this image of arguing in court was starting to take some shape if I wasn't going to do the music thing. And so I'm thinking law school. Um, and so I said to my dad, you know, what if I do undergraduate in something, you know, humanities or whatever seems to, to be a good fit with, with law, and then I go to law school. And my dad being the, you know, um, thoughtful person he is, he goes, yeah, he would fund law school if I did an engineering undergraduate degree. And so, seems fair. yeah, it seems fair. Well, he knew I also liked, and I found kind of playful physics and math, you know, so I was also doing that stuff and, and, you know, physics kind of were these puzzlers, you know, things happen and how can you put some rules around them to explain more why they're happening and how can you reproduce it? So, so I liked my physics classes. So I, you know, thought, thought, well, you know, this isn't such a bad deal if he's going to pay for law school, I'm not going to ruin my brain by, um, you know, taking this engineering stuff. Because in fact, my dad, I always admired something would happen, you know, the washing machine would break, or there was a weird noise in the car or, or something. And, and he wouldn't panic, he would start, you know, asking questions about when did we hear this? Or when was the last time this happened? Or let's take it apart and see, you know, what, what, so he had a system Were you making that connection that he's applying engineering. Yeah, yeah, I was starting to, you know, making that, 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 
is something that comes out of that engineering training. So it's not going to wreck me to yeah. do uh, engineering. At the right, worst, right, yeah. right. <laughs> so, um, you know, at, at the time I only applied then to one school. Oberlin went away as, as a name and I went to the University of Wisconsin and I got the engineering field as close as I could to physics. So I did engineering mechanics. Um, you know, thinking I don't want to dive into that ME stuff or, or electrical engineering, you know, let's have something that really has physics at it at its core. And um, so started in that and, uh, you know, freshman year was typical big, large classes. And, um, you know, I did okay. Um, sophomore year, I had my first engineering class and um, I went to it and there were about 30 of us. And I was the only woman in the vast majority of my classes when they started to be engineering focused. And um, at that class, the professor was already talking about stress and strain and torque and, you know, all these concepts. And I looked around at all of my colleagues and I, I'm thinking, they know what he's talking about. I don't. So I went back to my dorm room and I called my dad and I said, I can't do this. I really can't do this. And he said, well, you could come home and get your old car hop job. And I don't know if you know what a car hop is. So it used to be that uh, restaurants that were burger kind of places and milkshake places, you could drive your car into a slot and there was a little stand from which you could order. Um, and then somebody in roller skates would come out with your yeah. food and hang it on the windows. I think we had this growing up, uh, a Sonic in, 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 the, it, growing up okay. in, in the South. So, yeah. <laughs> and I hated that job, <laughs> that summer job. So I went back and long story short, um, you know, one of the other students in the class, the next class period, and he was a little older, you know, what, 23, and I was like 17 or 18, raised his hand and said to the professor, I don't have the foggiest of what you're talking about. And it was like, they don't know either. And, and it really liberated me to say, question asking is the name of the game when you're a student. And I ended up really enjoying engineering and um, law school faded away. Um, I had several internships with General Motors and got fascinated with manufacturing and the chaos that is involved in, in creating products. And so um, was then slated solidly in engineering. Um, so if I could connect the dots in, in some of the topics that you had in the talk today, you, you started us with an, an activity to sort of describe what an engineer looks like. And mm -hmm. um, I think the message was that, you know, we have this perception of engineers growing up. You certainly did. You had a kind of unique one because your dad was an mm -hmm. engineer. So you kind of were, I think the self picture you have for yourself and what job you can imagine yourself is really clouded by, by these. Um, so, you know, what is the perception of engineering for young people now? How does that really color how they think of that as a potential job? Well, you know, I think it's, it's increasingly colored in, in positive ways with more explicit um, activities in high school and middle school. Um, so for instance, first robotics, I don't know if you're familiar with, with that activity, um, you know, gets uh, prevalent the idea that it, it's about creating things, it's about iterating, it's around things not working, and then how do you problem solve around that? Um, it's around your imagination being realized through a combination, again, of creativity, but also science. Um, it's not an isolated thing. Um, you know, some of these teams are really working to have the coaches not be just white men, um, but, you know, how do you get a broader range of, of people involved? Um, there's also versions of FIRST that are really recognizing that some communities don't have as many assets. Um, so maybe you're not surrounded by Lockheed engineers um, or have, you know, really large budgets. So how do you develop activities that are um, at a smaller scale? Um, and Chris Rogers, for instance, at Tufts, who's in the mechanical engineering department, has really for a number of years been dedicated on how do you develop activities for younger kids using Legos or other materials? And then how do you start to assess their progress in terms of seeing themselves enjoying those activities, but also understanding how those activities can be implemented as adults. Thinking about what you just said about kind of the locale of where you're at, obviously mattering a lot in terms of your resources. Do you think the kind of digitalization of, of education that we've had to do in the past couple of years could help solve some of those problems, especially for, you know, communities that are isolated from 
big companies with engineers that could actually physically come there? Um, you know, I, I think there is that potential to um, to get resources, experiences, interactions um, happening at, at a distance. Um, you know, I think there's also then, too, how do you help students have experiences locally? Um, so the Lemelson Foundation a few years ago had an interesting set of, of grants for high school kids where um, the kids could identify a problem in their school that they thought would have a technological um, part of the solution. And so it really let them see the utility of engineering and that process of creating not just something that, you know, is in a firm that is hundreds and hundreds of miles away, but is really also very applicable to their local environment. So let's go back. You're, you're in uh, undergrad, starting to feel like you found your place and engineering could be the, the dream. Were you thinking to just be an engineer right out of the gate or was when did grad school start to kind of come online? You know, I, I was feeling that already by the time I was a junior or a senior, two things. One, I was developing this toolbox and I was excited at, at the prospect of going out and using it in, um, in a real world situation. At the same time, I knew there were more tools. Um, so at the time that I was an undergraduate, Finite Elements was just starting to be developed. Um, and some of the first textbooks were coming out. And it seemed like, okay, there's going to be some meat and substance um, associated with this longer term. Maybe I need some graduate school education to continue to develop my technical knowledge around finite elements and materials and structures. So I was very fortunate to get several offers from companies that also sponsored mass master's degrees. And one was out here in this strange world called California <laughs> um, with Lawrence Livermore National Labs. And, um, and you know, I still remember that interview and flying out here and uh, being taken to this really kind of um, fantastical place called San Francisco <laughs> and, and going to Fisherman's Wharf. And I was quite taken with it, you can tell. Um, but I was also offered a position with Chrysler Corporation. And they also had a master's degree that was integrated into their, um, into their early career professional um, hires. And I ended up taking the Chrysler offer. Um, uh, two reasons. One is their program also included uh, rotational um, experiences around their company. So I was able to work for a period at their proving grounds, driving cars and collecting data there. Um, I um, had a number of months in product planning, you know, really working with a lot of MBAs, thinking about what's on the docket for five to 10 years in terms of vehicles. I went to mechanic school for three months and rebuilt transmissions to actually, you know, get a, a you know, tactical experience with, with the product. So that really seemed exciting to see a company from, from many, many um, perspectives. And they also brought the 30 of us together weekly so we could hear talks by leadership in, in the organization. And then we did master's degrees. Um, so the other part of it, so that was a cool program. The other prog uh, um, part of it was actually a partner and thinking about two of us and careers. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time I was married and I still am uh, <laughs> many, many, many years later. And um, Ed was finishing a master's degree at the University of um, Wisconsin in biomedical engineering. And so he, you know, this was 45 years ago, yeah. very <laughs> early days where where I think biomedical um, engineering was really dealing with what's its identity and how is it different than physics or electronics or, you know, what what's its core. And um, he interviewed with biomechanics um, companies. And at the time, they seemed more inclined to hire a, a, an MD to work in combination with an electrical engineer and a mechanical engineer. So they really didn't quite know how to, to deal with somebody with this new degree. So Ed is also a car head. So um, he ended up going to Ford Motor Company. So we both could find employment that we were happy with. So they were the hiring trajectory. biomedical engineers? Yes. Wow. Um, but he also knew a lot about microprocessors and control systems, and he has motor oil in his veins. <laughs> so he was able to convince them that, you know, uh, he's a good engineer, which he was and is. Um, so was it super determinant? I mean, uh, the, the two-body problem of you and your partner aside, but all these opportunities that Chrysler was, offer, was offering you as part of this cool internship master's degree program rethinking 
this is going to help me decide what I want to do next? Or did you already have a strong vision of what you wanted to do? Or it just sounded cool? Well, um, you know, I think along with this idea about being a concert violinist, you know, I was even more so driven at that point in my life to be the top of whatever I was doing. So um, after I finished the master's degree, I actually enrolled in an MBA program. <laughs> um, because if you want to be CEO of Chrysler or any you know major organization, you probably need to know something about finance. So that's what you were thinking. You were yes, going to stay with Chrysler. I was going to and... stay with Chrysler. You know, it was also at a time where people still hired in and had a career with a, with a company right. long term. And um, after I finished my master's, I started teaching at night at um, a school called Lawrence Institute of Technology. And, you know, I had said before, teaching was something I would never do. Um, but I had a dear, dear mentor in my master's program, Professor George Karajian, who uh, I just admired as an educator. And he said to me, Sherry, Lawrence Institute of Technology needs somebody to teach a night class in materials. I think you might be good at it. And that just short little interaction of this person I admired saying, you might be good at this was enough for me to say, well, it's probably worth the risk to these poor students. <laughs> and um, I just was, I loved it. I mean, it was challenging on so many levels of how to take a concept that seemed natural to me. And, and you know, I'd forgotten all the, all the, the struggles I had gotten to be able to, you know, understand body-centered cubic versus face-centered cubic and, you know, kind of all those, and, and uh, thermoplastic and, you know, all those things. And now how do you help others own that idea and own it in a way that they can actually take action? And, and so that ended up being a, just a new idea for me. Um, and, and just really an intellectually good challenge do you think it was a different mindset because it was a technical school? And I guess in, in my perception, there'd be a higher chance that they're really going to use that information rather than kind of a more like, oh, it's an undergrad. We're kind of doing a broad education, you know. I, th I think there was the practicality. Also, these were working adults who, you know, were very serious about advancing their state in life by getting an undergraduate degree. So I think there was that seriousness. And then I think there was the rawness still of me recognizing learning is a struggle. You know, in all of those rotations I was doing at Chrysler, I was having to learn new things all the time and, and how um, uh, unhelpful sometimes organizations can be in helping people on board, which is really learning the rules of how an operation, you know, happens. And um, so recognizing teaching is kind of that. And it's not just this rote thing of, um, you know, you've got a student and you open up their brain and you pour the stuff in. How do you start thinking about active things? And at that point, really active learning wasn't this buzz phrase that it is now. But there was something about, you know, having a dialogue with students that to me already was part of the chemistry. And, you know, thinking about it, I don't know. Some of that could be my musical training, where in fact, you know, you don't play and just not look at the audience. You really are engaged with with your audience, and and are they getting it? And 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 yeah. So so um, I don't know. So I liked the teaching at night, and at the same time, I had left Chrysler and I'd gone to a small consulting firm that was one of the first firms doing finite element consulting. And so, um, you know, at the time we were running Nastran and um, it was very laborious. There was no preprocessor. I'm, I'm telling war stories kind of. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you would you would run um, a Nastran run and actually just see, did you have all the nodes in the right place? Or was there one node that was so far off that, you know, here's your structure and there's this, this off node. We were physically measuring dimensions off of massive drawings on the wall. Um, we were barely making it, so every billable hour was really important. And we would get a job to an okay stage, hand it off to the client, and we needed to go on to the next job. Um, and I was starting to say, but we should have tested this variable, you know. So I wanted to ask a lot more questions, but there was no capacity to do that. So that was starting to, to have me say, hmm, research, you know, am, am I more of a researcher than down in the trenches engineer? That coupled with um, my teaching experience said, ah, 
an MBA, a PhD. Maybe that's the degree I should be going for. And um, my husband and I were in circumstances and, and we had designed our lives for many, many years where we only needed one income to live. And so, um, so I went back for, I went to, for a PhD and fortunately it was basically in my backyard at the University of Michigan in um, Ann Arbor. Well, I felt, yeah, that, that, you know, we'd known for a number of years what it was like to be a couple and, you know, have a life and have a house and, and, and mortgage payments and car payments. And, and so there were really a sense of, let me get in, get this done. And at that point, doing it really was with the goal of being able to teach at the university level. Gotcha. Uh, so did you start to explore that once you, once you, well, what was your kind of uh, thesis project while you were there? Um, I was looking at um, crack growth in bearings um, and it ends up that in bearing kind of structures, the cracks grow below the surface and they grow um, parallel to the surface for a while. And then they come out and you get a big chunk of material coming out. And this is particularly a problem in a lot of repetitive loading situations like train C. And that um, phenomenon is called spalling. Um, And so um, it was a computationally focused simulation, really trying to understand how loads affected the rate of growth of these cracks. Um, And um, a funny little thing is my title was something like subsurface crack propagation and conditions of slip snips, you know, kind of, and I'm sitting at the graduation ceremony in the big stadium in, in Ann Arbor, and they have all the PhDs, you know, kind of these, um, uh, serious scholars. And I'm sitting at the back row of those and there are master students behind us. And, and in the big pamphlet, they publish, you know, the name of the candidate and the title of his or her thesis. And so there's a master's student behind me looking at the pamphlet and going, boy, this sounds really <laughs> boring. Subservice crack propagation under conditions of slipstick. I'm just laughing. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Uh, it's like, no, it's really fascinating. It Let was. Me it it yeah. was my life for yeah. a number of years. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. It is. That's like, you know, explaining to, you know, people that aren't in engineering degrees, what you're doing sometimes yeah. can be yeah. very, very, sound yeah. very challenging. Yeah. Um, so then what happened after you graduated? So I was searching for faculty positions, you know, in my last year and, and it uh, was like teaching faculty positions. You weren't thinking to go into well, research or, you know, I have to say I was so naive and, uh, you know, I don't even know back then whether the Carnegie classifications of institutions existed. Um, I did know that we had gone on vacation while I was a PhD student to this strange world called California. (laughs) And we had some friends in Ann Arbor who had originally come from California and they'd moved back and they had invited us to come and visit California. And my advisor, who my master's advisor, who I told you about, George Courageous, he said, you're going out there. Why don't you visit this school called Berkeley, Mm. UC Berkeley, (laughs) and this school called Stanford? And okay, never we're going, I never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, George helped arrange visits at both places. And so um, I went to Berkeley and they were very cordial and friendly and nice. And, you know, I could maybe see myself being there. And then the next day we drove down to Stanford and we drove, I don't know if you've ever been down Palm Drive. And it's like, we're not in Wisconsin. We're not in Michigan. And this is so cool. Um, And so, you know, driving down Palm Drive and he, um, uh, George had arranged for me to meet some of the faculty within a group in uh, mechanical engineering called the design group. And um, I met Henry Fuchs, Drew Nelson and um, uh, Bernie Roth. And um, Bernie and um, Drew are still my colleagues now. Um, and, you know, I met them as this PhD student. Um, they were talking about design and creativity, um, which were not really part of my thesis, but this was like, whoa, you know, this is creativity stuff in mechanical engineering. And um, they were, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the book Conceptual Blockbusting, which Jim Adams wrote, which is um, in its fifth or sixth edition about kind of liberating the creativity in your brain. So it was like, this is a really different place. This is where I want to be. So when it came to interviewing for schools, um, they didn't have a position at Stanford. Um, but I interviewed at Georgia Tech. I interviewed at um, Ann Arbor and had gotten offers there but decided I was going to hold out to see if something would become available at Stanford. So I ended up actually taking a job at Ford Motor Company, which was three blocks from our house, in their research labs. 
And they were doing a lot with finite elements and in particular developing their own code to do very nonlinear high deformation, high, high displacement for crash simulation. And um, it seemed like a really interesting application of finite elements. And, you know, as a company, they were also thinking about how does this allow you to do more design iterations and not just always be dependent on, you know, this single data point of you actually build a real vehicle and you slam it into the wall. And um, so I took a job with them, um, not knowing what would you know, develop or not develop in, in Ann Arbor or in, uh, at Stanford. And I loved the work because it was a time when research, a lot of research labs were moving from being kind of pure research. And if this is relevant to us as a company, that could be nice, but it wasn't necessary. They were really saying, whatever technology you're doing, can we really imagine it in five to 10 years impacting how we do engineering? And so we were tied with our development of a code to a new design of the T-Bird. And so we were really having to think about, okay, they're making these design decisions or, or they want to make a decision, how can we be helping them? And so it was this really nice combination of research, but somebody cared about it. And, um, and so at the end of the year, during that year, there was, was an opening at Stanford and I interviewed for it and I did get an offer. And so I did have a little bit of, of internal, like, oh, I, I could actually see myself moving up in the company at Ford, um, or moving out to this strange place called, um, Stanford and California. Um, and you, you know, that what I decided, <laughs> I decided to go to this strange world, um, and called California, which is now not strange to me at all. It's home. Do you ever think about the the other path? Yeah, I do. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to actually have a fair amount of research support from um, from both Ford and uh, General Motors. And so I've, you know, kept mm -hmm. in an mm -hmm. interesting connection with them. Um, if I'd stayed, I'd probably have been retired for a number of years. <laughs> Um, people tend to retire, you know, in, in the auto industry much younger, and you do really retire. Yeah. Um, you, you, you leave the company. Um, but I think for a number of reasons, um, you know, my choice to, to be an academic, to be an educator has just um, been a very fulfilling path. Um, I mean, I have to say students are still the center of why I do what I do. And, um, and that's both, you know, just having them learn the basics, but I have to say I've fallen in love with doing research with students because there's something about a, a new researcher, a budding researcher coming in with a question that's a little foggy and maybe it's not the right question and they really struggle of, of how to fine tune the question and then watching them, you know, learn methods, um, watching them read the literature and be totally confused. And then over a number of years, watching them actually rebut that article that they didn't understand at the beginning and, you know, really see all of its flaws and having them new, have new data that they've interpreted. And so I really look at that as kind of the most intimate teaching you can do. Yeah. How do you take an active role in kind of driving that process? Um, I mean, I think it, it varies from student to student because, you know, you really need to understand what they bring to the party um, or not and what's their motivation for it. And, you know, are they thinking that this is a path to um, teaching at a, a research focused institution or a teaching focused institution? So, so being aware of their development on that path. Um, you know, because if they're thinking about an R1, publishing is a really important part along along the way. Um, and, you know, meeting with them a fair number of times at the beginning um, to really see how they're developing their idea, my giving them pointers to other people, to other literature, establishing milestones so that they don't, um, you know, get frustrated and lost for too long. Um, I think it's also important, depending on how interdisciplinary their work is, who is the reading team. You know, so there's a reading committee and, um, you know, I don't have all the skills they need. And so they may need someone, you know, for instance, I had a, a student whose work was focused on the role of meditation in promoting creativity. And, um, and you know, I could bring in some of the measures and thinking about creativity, particularly as related to design. And she was focused on engineering students um, in a, a two types of meditation. 
but I'm not a meditation expert, you know. So we, she found somebody at the University of Santa Clara who then joined the reading committee. Gotcha. So you're, yeah, it's, it seems like you're really trying to facilitate, essentially, maybe connect their day-to-day activities with that vision they have for themselves. You can kind of fit that. But you have this unique kind of lab because you you have you know, hardcore classic research elements, but then you're also really focusing on uh, teaching engineering as well. So when students come to you that are passionate about joining your lab, are they, is it mostly people that want to teach and then they do something practical to kind of root those skills or how do you, how do you manage that? Um, I would say it's, it, it's a range. Um, so, um, you know, one example of, of student, uh, Sarah Parikh, who is actually now a professor at uh, Foothill College, which is a part of the community college system. You know, she came into Stanford to do a PhD with, um, in heat transfer, you know, solidly focused on a technical area and started working with Professor Ken Goodson. And through that first couple of years, she really recognized that teaching was something that was also very interesting to her. And she started coming to my lab's meetings. And we were able to ultimately define a PhD topic for her that combined teaching and heat transfer. And it had Ken Goodson and me as co-advisors. And so her, her fundamental question was, do students in a 10-week-long heat transfer course become any more expert-like in their problem-solving processes? And um, so she ended up recruiting some experts in heat transfer and developing a series of, of kind of open-ended, ambiguous problems and, and recorded how they problem-solved. Um, and one of the things that she really identified in their processes was... Um, very early on, they bound the problem. Um, you know, they start to say, here's some assumptions, here's some constraints, you know, almost as a, as a, a pre-step to say, okay, we could bring in this rule or this principle, but to bring that in, you really have to say, you know, uh, not everything is a free variable. Um, then she gave those same kind of exercises in a 10 week long course on heat transfer that it, Ken Goodson happened to be teaching and watched how the students changed or didn't change in terms of bringing in some of those expert-like um, problem-solving habits, if you will, into the process. So there's an example of someone who, um, you know, transitioned. Um, I had another student who really thought that she wanted to have similarly to what Sarah did, that be the part of her, her thesis. And she joined some existing projects in my lab so that she could start to develop some of the tools and skills, whether it be quantitative or qualitative research strategies. And through that process, she actually, and we published several papers with her as an author, she realized that she really still wanted to be a traditional ME in terms of her, her research. And so she ended up leaving my lab and joining Chris Gertie's vehicle dynamics kind of laboratory. And that's great, too, that, that, that people find their path. I currently have uh, two other students that, that again, their stories are, are illustrate different ways of being part of my lab. So, um, so Jerry is a, you know, card carrying electrical engineering PhD student. Um, but he has, and it started as an undergraduate at the University of Texas, a lot of interest around equity and engineering education. And um, there with Margot Borrego did actually a couple of papers on, on that, particularly related to gender and sexual identity. And so now he's doing a parallel set of, of research projects in my lab um, that are separated from his, his work that he's doing over in the EE lab. Um, so, so we've got a lot, uh, there's not one model. And, and so that's where I, you know, I really want, and I appreciate it, you using the word facilitate. I want to help facilitate a path that's going to get the student to where they want to be. And so it may not Which be- Which is evolving a, yeah, as they exactly. start to learn more, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, something that really struck me in your talk was your focus on- kind of breaking out of the traditional design path for engineers, thinking about how to solve engineering problems in a really technical way um, and incorporating people instead. So uh, you talked about this idea of contextual uh, social awareness. So can you explain that a bit more? Um, so, you know, the, the, that what that concept is trying to capture is the question how thinking about the individuals and the communities that are affected 
by a possible design solution is something that shouldn't be done at the end, that really needs to happen early on. And, you know, some of that can come up um, more easily or naturally if we have diverse engineers at the table um, because they bring different life experiences that might say, oh, you know, should we include young mothers, you know, as a particular target group in this because might they have some needs that are different than, than the general generic kind of persona. Um, you know, it, and it also comes from thinking about the longer impact impact. Um, and you could say that starts to melt into the idea of sustainability of design solutions. Um, there's also, you know, identifying it and letting students and faculty see what it looks like um, and how it can. And this was the factor that we really couldn't tease out just using the Atman coding is it needs to be woven in with the technical. So, it's not just saying, well, we should talk to the people in East Palo Alto. It's we should talk to them about these dimensions of their life and how it relates to this. So drawing the people into the specific questions about the technological solution is important. It's It seems pretty vague to me on how to incorporate a lot of these concepts of diversity, equity, inclusion in general in an engineering class. Um, design classes, I think you're starting to uncover a lot of these a lot of these methods. But you know, what advice would you have towards faculty that are just creating a, a generic kind of mechanical engineering class? that maybe doesn't obviously have, have DEI components? Well, you know, um, in the reference list, there's a um, inclusive course design uh, booklet that we've put together on, on ways that faculty beyond design can think about incorporating this. And, and it might come from, you know, who you select as your teaching assistants and what kind of experiences they bring and how diverse are they in terms of, of um, where in the country or the world they came from, race, ethnicity. Um, have they had internships? Have they had research as undergraduate experience? And really having those individuals see that they're part of the teaching team. You know, they're not just graders. Um, they really play an important role in opening students' minds and imaginations about, you know, how are these concepts useful? And, and, and you know, I'm finding that sometimes a message coming from somebody who's 25 to someone who's 18 can be more powerful than somebody who's a little older than that, um, um, uh, telling the message. So it can happen that way. It can also happen in, in you know, adding little vignettes, you know, so I, you know, I'm teaching solid mechanics and, and beam theory and those sort of things, but showing examples where graduates have used those concepts out in practice and, you know, having a photograph of that alum who's working at Apple or working at whatever company is another way to start, you know, students to recognize that could, could be me. Um, I also in this class um, always have a a visitor, you know, usually an alum who's been out for a few years, come and do a 20-minute talk on how useful were these concepts really in your work. And sometimes they'll say, you know, some of them are not really very useful. Um, here, here are the things you should be, you know, focusing on as an undergraduate. But it's it's connecting things. Um, there's also the idea of, you know, when you talk about leaders in your field, you know, going the extra mile. To recognize that it's it's not just the Elon Musks that are inventing things or have invented things. So pulling out examples from more diverse populations. How is engineering education going to change in the next you know couple of years? Um, are there big sea changes that you wish could happen or that you see happening, or or is it just more along these lines of increasing DEI and 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 active elements like you're talking about? You know, I, I think there are a couple of other um, factors and, and you know, I, one could label them as pluses or minuses, you know. So I think, you know, we've lived through an incredible world in the last two years with online education. And I think we really need to, to factor in what elements of that we want to be more permanent and, and who's advantaged and who is disadvantaged in bringing those factors in. So it's not divorced from DEI. Um, is it a way to actually reach more students? Um, or is it a way that some students will become, in fact, more isolated? Um, is it a way to bring in more examples? You know, So can, can you get a guest coming from Detroit through Zoom to um, come to your class for 15 minutes that you couldn't otherwise? 
So I think that's also a really powerful factor in um, in education. Um, I would say in my field too, the um, the integration of the digital and the physical world, and you know now that simulations are becoming even more and more powerful, what does that say to the physical experiences that students have? Um, you know the the going into a, a lab and actually learning how to run a lathe or a mill in order to produce a product from your own imagination. So I think, I wouldn't say it's a battle between the two, but I think it gives us some more choices on on how to think about the digital and the physical world. Um, also the hybrid and the all online or back in room world. And then how is diversity, equity, and inclusion affected by all of that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Are you worried about the last two years of, of students that haven't been able to get that hands-on experience in terms of engineering, especially mechanical engineering? Um, I would say concerned from, um, I think a, a couple of things, I think we've probably lost some students who've chosen other majors because they'd been looking forward to that hands-on and they didn't get it. Um, I also worry about it because, you know, if you see the, um, the bumping up of confidence of students who may have, you know, they don't know what a lathe is, much less where's the on button and the off button, and watching their evolution over 10 weeks, and, and Professor Dave Beach is really the champion of, of this set of courses, their confidence going, you know, growing on being able to move material. They're also seeing that that work doesn't happen in isolation because he's built an incredible team of um, teaching assistants that really support students and support students in making mistakes. You know, that that you try something and, and yeah, that press fit didn't work. We actually cracked the material. What do you learn from that? You, you, you move on. So I worry that they've missed out on, on that kind of... Um, um, confidence building and, and mindset development. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Carol Dweck's work on growth versus fixed mindset. So she's in psychology at Stanford. And um, the idea of a fixed mindset in an area would be my saying, I just can't do math. You know, I just, you know, it's not my thing. And so, you know, I take a math test and I don't do well on it. And I kind of say, well, see, that's evidence. I can't do math. Whereas a, a growth mindset is oh, I didn't do well on that math test. You know, what problems did I have? You know, how can I get better at those? Really is around recognizing that that my intelligence isn't a fixed thing, that, that I can really actively participate in knowing more. Is it just people being aware of that concept that helps, or are there active ways that you can try to improve that mindset? You can actually work on it. Carol does workshops with, you know, individuals from kindergartners to elite athletes to, you know, you know, because it really, and we could have a growth mindset in part of our life. You know, I mm -hmm. could say I have a growth mindset in my teaching, but I have a fixed mindset in my cooking <laughs> <laughs> abilities. <laughs> um, but so I could really work on my growth mindset in cooking. Yeah. Speaking of that kind of growth mindset, I mean, a lot of the research that you're doing is challenging the status quo, essentially. You're, I think the, the underlying assumption is that we can do better than we're doing now. What are some of the ways that we can do it? Um, obviously, change is hard and a lot of people are going to be resistant and have been teaching and doing research. How do you deal with colleagues that you know you're not the boss of um, that are resistant to these sort of things how do you get buy-in from other faculty one faculty member at a time you know <laughs> um, and I actually put a lot of hope with junior faculty um, and growing generations of future faculty so um, for a number of years I've um, had a course called um, science and engineering course design um, and it's for PhD students and postdocs in, um, in the sciences. And there's always, you know, a strong cohort saying, you know, I, they want to be academics and they're recognizing there's, there's some tools and strategies that will make them better educators. And so I, you know, I always take a lot of hope from that group that, um, you know, come in kind of like, how do you design a course? 
and um, and us taking through them through a number of weeks. And by the end of 10 weeks, they've actually designed a course. Mm. And of course, they don't have every lecture planned, but they're really seeing what some of the foundational components are, you know, starting with what are my objectives? In, you know, uh, what do I want students to be able to do at the end of this experience that they can't do when they come in? What are my assumptions about um, prerequisites and what they're coming in with? How do I think about a set of experiences called lectures and homeworks and projects and all those choices that you make that would allow me to see evidence and allow them to see evidence at the end of the course that they've grown? So, so I take joy that that course, you know, has has been around and it's a collaboration with our Center for Teaching and Learning. Um, I so again, again, it comes back to education for yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, 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 it does. And, you know, I've, I've taken um, solace in the National Science Foundation's, you know, nudging this forward. So, um, you know, when career awards um, first existed, they were, you know, largely focused on research and what's your research vision. They much more seriously now ask about your teaching vision and not just saying, I'm going to teach these classes, but have expectations really integrating that it. Yeah, yeah. integrating it and pulling in the literature um, so that there's a more scholarly approach to teaching. Um, so I take, you know, hope that, that this younger generation will also um, be pushing things forward. Um, you've been very successful at, um, at, at uh, obtaining NSF funds to make engineering centers um, and, and, and different initiatives where you're trying to improve the, these, these sea changes in, in education. Um, but I would ask you, what are some things that people may be surprised to know about you outside of your kind of, you know, professional day? Oh, uh, let's see. Um, I like Burning Man. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we've gone five times. Um, and it's, a uh, um, surprise. Yeah. So, um, and, and actually Bernie, who I mentioned before, um, my dear colleague, and I won't tell you how old Bernie is, but, um, so he's been going to Burning Man for 20 plus years and, and, and he would come back and have his nails painted green and other things. And, and I kept saying, well, you know, that sounds like a cool thing to do. You know, this is the girl from Wisconsin yeah, and an moving to this ticket. world. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so finally I, I said, I'm doing it. I bought two tickets, one for me and one for my husband. And we went and we said, we'll just go one. And um, on the way back, the whole thing was like, when are we going again? And so, um, so we sew costumes um, because during the day it's pretty warm and there's a theme always. And so it's fun creating and, and sewing costumes for the day and then costumes for the night when it's actually quite chilly out there. And um, so we're part of a camp called Camp Nice Nice. And uh, you have to be a nice person to, to be in Camp Nice Sounds Nice. Good. So, um, so that's something. Um, I really value doing yoga. Um, it's a, um, it's been a, um, a good, both physical and mental, um, training. Um, I tend to be a pretty competitive person and it's been humbling to not be looking at, you know, that person next to me who <laughs> can you know, like tie themselves into a knot and say, I want to do that too. And really just being accepting and valuing and enjoying that and kind of being where I am every day. Um, and turning off the chatter in my, my head. So, um, so yoga has been an important practice. Um, other things, I have a um, daughter um, who's 33 and her name is Portia and she was named for the car. Um, <laughs> and uh, she wouldn't mind of me by saying this, except um, when she was actually born, we decided to spell it like Shakespeare. So it's P-O-R-T-I-A. Um, but her middle name is Ilan because we own a Lotus Ilan car. Um, and, um, does she like cars? She does like cars. Um, she is though a humanist. Uh, so she, um, studied history and creative writing at Stanford Cool. and then, um, did an MFA in poetry up at the university of Victoria and a library science masters and is now the uh, youth librarian at the San Leandro, uh, public library. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so um, I like her. Did you pick up any uh, new hobbies in the during the pandemic? Um, let's see, new hobbies. Yes. Um, so um, right before the pandemic, we had bought a used RV, um, and um, the 
spring of the pandemic, I was supposed to be on sabbatical. And so the plan was to head out in the RV into somewhere and do writing or non-writing or yoga or, or other things. And the pandemic hit, hit and, and you heard about all the things that were happening. And I said, I'm canceling my sabbatical because, you know, there's help needed. Um, and so we, um, we ended up being sad about not being able to have this long time in this RV. So we parked it on campus for seven weeks and <laughs> camped on campus. <laughs> the camp- that's funny. So, so that was picking up a new hobby of, of living just on you campus. Just with Portia too? No, no she was okay. actually already living in, in Oakland. It was just the, the two of us. And, That's cool. And so it was fun. Yeah. And it's it really inspired a, um, and I think it was already there, um, a fascination with tiny houses and, mm, and really cool. how much space does one need to live. And, I guess um, that's appropriate over in the Bay Area yeah, anyway. But, it, yeah. It's appropriate, but also really finding with fewer things actually being happier. Yeah. Again, towards sustainability yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Cool. Well, the last question that I, that I ask our guests is what's the last great thing that you watched or read? One book that I'm still reading, I'll say about, and then a book that I finished. Um, it's called The Last Green Valley, and I'm forgetting the author's name. Um, but I started reading it about a week before the Ukraine invasion. And it actually takes place primarily in the 1940s as a Ukrainian family is um, moving to the West as the Russians are coming in from the East and um, and they're following the Germans out um, to get out of Ukraine. And so it really put into a longer context um, for me, a historical context, the conflict there. And part of their fleeing the Russians was the 1932-1933 starvation that the Russians did of of many Ukrainians. Um, So there was massive starvation in the Ukraine in that period. And so the book is partially based on a real story of a real family. And um, spoiler alert, (laughs) um, so the family eventually ends in a valley in Montana and the, this really f- real family existed, and the author took the two boys that were part of the family, who are now 80-year-olds, back to the Ukraine to visit some of the spots as he was researching the story. So, so I'm reading this book, and you know, about halfway through, and the invasion happened. So it was wow. very poignant of, yeah. of understanding Super timely. it. Yeah. And then right now I'm reading um, a book called Behave. Um, and really looking at um, from from a neuroscience and a hormonal standpoint and a genetic standpoint um, why we behave the way we do and it's it's really fascinating. I wonder if I can get something uh, some advice there for my toddler right now. That yeah. would be good. <laughs> yeah, they do talk a lot about kids and adolescent brains. Yeah, <laughs> cool. I'll have to check it out. I'll link those below. Well, Dr. Shepard, thanks so much for, for joining fun. us. Um, where can people find you if they want to connect further? Um, my email. Cool. Uh, Shepard, S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D at stanford.edu. Great. Thanks so much. Sure. Take care.